What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's being reported by The Guardian, and they're reprinting parts of these documents that they have received a leak from inside the Kremlin that Donald Trump was basically installed as president of the United States with the help of three different Russian spy agencies. Now, the huge caveat on this, is it possible that this itself is a Russian disinformation program? In other words, are these forged documents or tampered with documents or something like that that were given to The Guardian for some reason? Have the Russians, for example, finally decided, you know, that Donald Trump guy, he's probably more of a liability than an asset. Perhaps they don't want him talking about his private conversations with President Putin or something like that. I mean, who knows? But the papers, they reference this meeting that happened, and you can read it all at theguardian.com. The papers that they have suggest that there was this meeting in the Kremlin on the 22nd of January of 2016. Now, keep in mind, that was the election year, but this was 11 months before the election, or 10 and a half months before the election. But it was also like within a, a few weeks of Donald Trump basically locking up the Republican nomination for president. He didn't have it yet, but he was walking away with it. And I mean, you know, in, I, I think it was March is Super Tuesday. So he was still a couple of months away from just completely having this. Quoting from Luke Harding is the author, the principal author of this piece. And he writes, they agreed a Trump White House would help secure Moscow's strategic objectives, among them social turmoil in the U.S. and a weakening of the American president's negotiating position. Which, you know, raises the question, was Trump installed in the United States by Russia? Perhaps a few other countries were in on it too, but yeah, it looks like this was a kind of a standalone project. And did it almost work? The papers seen by The Guardian, Luke Harding writes in The Guardian, seem to represent a serious and highly unusual leak from the Kremlin. He goes on to say, there's no doubt that that meeting in January actually took place. There was an official photo of President Putin there at the time that was released. The papers suggest that and by the way, the, the, the Kremlin now is saying these are forgeries. These are not real. Dmitry Peskov, who is the kind of official spokesman for the Kremlin, said that this was a, a great pulp fiction. 
the report says that Trump is, quote, the most promising candidate, end quote, from the Kremlin's point of view. There's a brief psychological assessment of him in which he is described in this report as, quote, impulsive, mentally unstable, and unbalanced individual who suffers from an inferiority complex. Luke Harding, the author for The Guardian, writes, this is pretty much the way that they would describe something like this. He goes on to say there's also apparent confirmation that the Kremlin possesses compromise or potentially compromising material uh, the, the, uh, on the future president collected, the document says, from Trump's, quote, earlier non-official visits to Russian Federation territory. It refers to, quote, certain events, end quote, that happened during his trip to Moscow. And then the paper says it is acutely necessary to use all possible force to facilitate Trump's election to the post of U.S. president. This is in The Guardian credible newspaper. It's based out of the UK. It's uh, the, the, the progressive newspaper for, for the United Kingdom. They have a US edition. It's at the top of Drudge right now, so that it's starting to make its way into the, the way typically the right-wing propaganda travels, is it starts out in a more obscure publication, you know, the Daily Caller or something, and then it goes to Drudge, and then from Drudge it goes to the New York Times and the Washington Post, and et cetera. And I haven't seen, now the last time I checked was about an hour ago, I haven't seen the New York Times or the Washington Post pick this up. It was not on NPR this morning. I listened to that as I was walking into work. But I am guessing that at the very least, they will soon be reporting that The Guardian is reporting and that there are questions about the veracity of this. But I'm looking at this and thinking whether this is a forgery or not, that was supposed to be in January. It was in April that Russian intelligence services, according to the Mueller report and U.S. intelligence services, that the Russians hacked the DNC and published Hillary Clinton's emails and, you know, in ways to embarrass her, to harm her as the candidate, that I think you could probably very safely argue helped set up the election of Donald Trump. Congressman Pocan has pointed out in this program that don't have the exact number off the top of my head. My recollection was like something like 120,000, but there was a substantial fall off in Democratic turnout in Wisconsin. And, and it wasn't just unique to Wisconsin. This was happening across the country. But again, keep in mind, Paul Manafort, the campaign manager for Trump, was giving state-by-state -state polling information to Russian intelligence. And we know from the Mueller report that some of the Russian intelligence agencies were then feeding Facebook and Twitter, in particular Facebook accounts, feeding information into those individual states to discourage, in particular, the Hillary Clinton super predator comment was being directed towards groups that had a lot, you know, Facebook groups that had a lot of black people in them, particularly in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. And I mean, it just looks like this is exactly what happened. Now, I'm not saying it is or it did, but what we do know, or at least what we believe we know based on U.S. intelligence, pretty widely accepted, we all saw the leaks through WikiLeaks, is that, you know, they pulled this thing off. If this was the case, I remember the movie The Manchurian Canada. I mean, it came out like in the 50s or 60s. And the whole theory was that a foreign government, and I think it was the Soviet Union, I'm not sure that it was named in the movie. This was before the fall of the Soviet Union. 
but that a foreign government would install their guy as president of the United States. And then he would set about systematically dismantling and crippling our ability to protect ourselves, essentially, our ability to defend the nation. And just by coincidence, at the same time that this news comes out, there's a new book out suggesting that that's exactly what happened. General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was basically organizing a mass resignation across the Joint Chiefs of Staff, saying that, you know, if Trump tries to stage a coup, and he was very concerned that that was happening, he was not going to let that happen. According to the book, he referred to, to Trump's supporters at a march to protest the election as, quote, brown shirts in the streets. He openly worried after Trump purged the Defense Department. Now, this happened right after the election, right after Trump lost the election. He got rid of Mark Esper in the Defense Department and replaced him with Chris Miller. Chris Miller was the guy who wrote the memo to the National Guard saying, you may not help out the Capitol Police, you'll recall. Milley, at the time, told his associates that he believed Trump was, quote, the classic authoritarian leader with nothing to lose, according to this book, and is portrayed as basically the guy who stood in the way. Another excerpt from the book has this conversation between Milley and Nancy Pelosi. After Trump fired Esper, Pelosi called up Milley and said, we're all trusting you, remember your oath. And uh, she was concerned that Trump might even blow off nuclear weapons in a desperate attempt to stay in power. And Milley says, uh, don't worry. I guarantee you these processes are very good. There's not going to be an accidental firing of nuclear weapons. And Pelosi says, how can you guarantee me? And Milley says, ma'am, there's a process. We will only follow legal orders. We will only do things that are legal, ethical, and moral. There's a whole story about Liz Cheney and Jim Jordan in here, too. So what's going on? And how successful have they been? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Are you noticing, for example, among your friends or people that you know or in the media, you know, a lack of, of uh, shall we say, confidence in America that might be the consequence of this? Just to wrap up the Mark Milley thing, I mentioned Liz Cheney. Milley talked with Liz Cheney right after January 6th. And in this, in this new book, Donald Trump is, uh, by the way, the book is by Phil Rucker and Carol Lenig of the Washington Post. It's titled, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year. And according to the book, Milley uh, was told by Liz Cheney that uh, well, here's, here's, uh, while these maniacs are going, this is what Liz Cheney said to him, uh, while these maniacs are going through the place, I'm standing in the aisle, and Jim Jordan said, we need to get the ladies away from the aisle. Let me help you, little miss. <laughs> right? And Liz Cheney says, I smacked his hand and said, get away from you effing, you effing did this. And then she said to Millie, that effing guy, Jim Jordan, he is a, an SOB. So you've got that. You've got this top general concerned about this. You've got, you've got the, the Kremlin papers. Um, Sue tells me that the Washington Post is now reporting on this. I mentioned earlier that they weren't as of a couple of hours ago. Um, 
I'm looking at their front page, and it's not not a big story on the front page, but uh, you know, it, it, it will be. I'm guessing as the day goes on, and if if the Guardian shares its source material with other reporters, that you're going to see you're going to see more and more of this. Which brings us to Steve Bannon. This very curious thing. Uh, there's this Chinese billionaire. His name is uh, Eduardo Gao. Uh, 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 no, Eduardo Yurakian is. Uh, let me start over. There is a Chinese billionaire. His name is Gao Wenghui. And he and Steve Bannon are working out of or uh, running operations out of a six-story, six-bedroom, essentially fortress on East 64th Street in New York City that was built in 2015 for the Argentinian billionaire Eduardo Yurnekian. And for the last year, they've said that it is now the consulate of the new federal state of China. I mean, it's just totally weird. Um, they've converted the building in violation of the, the local zoning codes, and they're running all these nonprofits uh, with, uh, you know, very, you know, like the rule of law society that Steve Bannon started to basically, well, I guess that's the question is, you know, what are these guys trying to do? They're running all these conspiracy theories about COVID and, and Hunter Biden. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. It just seems to me that if you look at the, right across the spectrum of this stuff, you know, Trump, China, the Bannon, Russia, all the, we're essentially under attack. Kelwin in Los Angeles. Hey, Kelwin, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's on your mind? Well, I was uh, going to say it's just interesting to me, you know, that uh, Russia has been meddling and so have other nations in our elections. And we do need to stop that, the ability of them and other nations from being able to do that. However, it's very ironic that the United States is kind of getting the just desserts after we have meddled in so many elections all over the world. And indeed, both our parties have, have done meddling in our own elections that that hurt the Democratic Party, one party more than the other, but both have been involved in this stuff. No, it's, it's, it's all true, Kelvin, and, and that's the point that Donald Trump made when he was with Putin, <laughs> and, the, and the question was raised by reporters, you know, that, that whataboutism. Uh, yes, it's true, but what does, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, hopefully we will learn a lesson from this, and uh, hopefully, just like hopefully we will learn a lesson from Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam. I mean, you know, sometimes it takes a long time to learn a lesson. Uh, but I think, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, I, I, I think there's a larger question here, though, uh, you know, setting aside the whataboutism, which is how much damage, if, if Trump was a Russian stooge, how much damage did he do to America for them? Or if he wasn't a Russia st Russian stooge, how much damage has he done to this country and how do we repair it? I agree. I agree. And, and we got to look into that. We also have to go back and review the damage that Reagan did, because what he did to our economy and the direction this nation gave went is what brought us Trump in the first place. Yeah. And we have to really reflect as a nation on who we want to be worldwide, the same way we want our kids to do that as we raise them. Yeah, I'm with you. Kelwin, thank you. Uh, Tyrone in Harlem, New York. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? I don't think Trump was a Manchurian um, candidate. He was blatantly obvious that the man was a criminal and that he and he was definitely working with the... In other words, there was no secret? There's no secret. The problem we have is we're still trying to uphold this illusion of uh, whiteness. And because if Trump was any other color besides white, they would have dealt with him completely differently. 
Oh, if this had come out about Barack Obama? Yes. Yes. I mean, can you imagine? If this had come out about one of Barack Obama's kids. Yes. 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 So that's what I'm saying. They keep the same thing with Nixon, Reagan, all of these people that, because from, from what you know, it is against the Constitution to work with a foreign government to be, government yeah. to become president. And, but, and but they did it. Tyrone, I, I don't disagree with you at all. Had, had Trump been black, everything would have been completely different. That said, had yes. Trump been a Democrat, I think everything would have been completely different. It would have been slightly different, different, if you, if you understand what I'm, yeah, I'm sure you know what I'm yeah, talking about. because you would have had both sides working against him a lot harder. Yeah. And both sides was working against um, um, Trump. At, at the beginning, because, you know, they were primarying against him. And that dossier originated from uh, a supporter of Rubio. So that, and, and they, they you know, negate the mention that, and they also... That's right. Yeah, yeah. Rubio had originally paid for the Steele document, the, the Steele yeah. dossier. Uh, Tyrone, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Uh, <laughs> amazing. So how do you think this is going to play out? And what do you think has happened to America as a consequence of it? We'll be right back. I want to tell you about uh, Steve Bannon and his crew talking about trying to take apart America. At this time with China. So now the Washington Post is reporting on this Russian document or what is purported to be the Russian document. Philip Bump is uh, writing about it. Uh, The headline is, a blockbuster document purportedly from the Kremlin raises lots of questions, dash, about itself. And what Philip Bump is saying is that this is just a little too convenient, and this document seems to be a little too prescient, and which raises a really interesting question that I put to you. If Trump was the tool of foreign powers... And he certainly was in the bag with Saudi Arabia. You know, when when, uh, MBS murdered uh, Khashoggi, Trump was there to defend him, Trump and and, uh, Kushner and and friends. In fact, Trump, you know, has been quoted as saying that he saved MBS's butt. So you've got, you know, Saudi Arabia on his side and the UAE on Trump's side. So they were supportive of him. In Israel, Netanyahu who the Republicans invited to come over to the United States and to address Congress and never even told the president of the United States at the time, that was Barack Obama, that this was happening. I mean, this is just a huge slap in the face that this head of state of a foreign government participated in, inserting himself, Netanyahu, into our, into our, into our political dialogue, as it were, during the Obama presidency. Again, something else that might have helped get Trump elected, who knows. I don't know that you could say that entire government, but certainly Mr. Netanyahu. You've got, obviously, Russia and Trump's long association with Russia and his association with Russian oligarchs and Russian billionaires and his putting on the, uh, the Miss Universe pageant over there and all these things. And one of the headlines over at Drudge, you know, is the PP tape real? The allegation in, in the dossier that was originally paid for by the Marco Rubio campaign. I know that the, you know, the Republicans and the right-wing media love to, oh, this was uh, paid for by Democrats and Hillary Clinton. Well, ultimately, but it, it started out, Marco Rubio hired Mr. Steele, you know, this, this former British spy who was an expert on Russia to look into relation, you know, the relationship between Trump and Russia. You know, when Rubio ultimately dropped out of the Republican primary, that was that was shopped around and the Clinton campaign picked it up. 
the question, I, and, I, and I think it's a good question, is what does this mean for America? What, what do we do with this? And is, is it possible that Trump's supporters, shall we say, for lack of a better word, are just now saying, you know, it's enough. Let's throw this guy under the bus. My personal opinion on this is that Trump has become a liability to everybody. And, you know, challenge me if you think I'm wrong on this. But he has become a liability to the Republican Party. I, you know, I get it. All across the country, you've got Republicans who are trying to out-Trump each other. Many of them are going to lose their next elections. Trump involving himself in our electoral process the way he is doing, I think, is, is one of the things that represents probably an existential threat to the Republican Party. And he's still running in scams. Uh, let's see, at 9.01, 38 minutes ago, I got an email from Donald Trump. And it's titled Official Invitation, and, it's, and, and the headline is Official Invitation from President Donald J. Trump. Fred, I always knew I could count on you, despite the lies and slander that has come from the late, they're both, <laughs> has, have, really? Uh, despite the lies and slander that has come from the lamestream media and their partners, the Democrats, your support has never wavered. You've been dedicated to our movement to save America from the very beginning, and to thank you, I'm offering you a spot on the official Trump honor roll. The Trump honor roll is made up of an elite group of supporters who go above and beyond to put America first. You are a perfect fit, Fred. Spots on the Trump honor roll don't come around often. I can only save yours until the end of the day before I'm forced to offer it to the next patriot in line. Please contribute $25 or more immediately to claim your spot on the official Trump honor roll. And then I click on that and it takes me to one of these WinRed pages where they have pre-clicked Make this a monthly recurring donation. donation. Donate an additional $25 automatically on July 13th. It's just rather pathetic and rather weird, but there it is. So what do you think is going on? Joe in St. Petersburg, Florida, your thoughts? Yes. Um, you know, I just wanted to back you up on something here. You were mentioning about the, the stuff that came out in the book about Trump replacing people mm -hmm. in the government as soon as he um, as soon as he lost the election. Right, that's when he that's when he, he stripped the top the top levels of the Pentagon. Yeah, I myself did not need a book to find that out. You could see in plain light of day what he was doing. First, he puts DeJoy in as the post office head, and DeJoy dismantles the post office. That yeah, wasn't an just in time for the election. To, yeah, to sabotage the election. Then. After he loses the election, in spite of all the stuff that he tried, he replaces Esper and all that stuff. I was seeing this going on in real time. It seriously upset me because I knew what he was doing. And I would talk to my husband about it. I'd say, look what he's doing. He's trying to set everything up so he can somehow subvert the, the, uh, the uh, transfer of power. And it was, you know, it's just, it was, nobody needs, uh, to me, nobody needs to see a book. Yeah. And as far as Bannon is concerned, he was arrested for, for uh, telling people that they, they were going to give him money so he could build the wall. This was a big thing with his father. That's right. He was wall. running a scam. And that's what, yeah, and that's what Trump pardoned him for. Yeah, with this Chinese guy that you were talking about. Yeah, he got, yeah, he got, he got busted on his yacht. You're absolutely right. I don't know By who, the why postal police. <laughs> for mail fraud. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I, I, I'm with you, Joe. I, I don't think it, it's a massive secret. But, you know, that said, this raises, you know, this question. If the Russians are turning on Trump, you know, and, and whether this is a real document uh, that The Guardian has or whether it was produced by Russian intelligence in order to make Trump look bad, uh, almost doesn't matter. Because in either case, I mean, The Guardian is asserting that this document came from Russia, so uh, that it was leaked out of, out of Russia. And so, you know, one way or the other, if they are saying, okay, we're going to throw this guy off the, you know, off the bus, if Republicans are starting to turn on him, you've, so far it's Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger in the, in the House, but, you know, I, I think we're, we're going to start seeing more and more of this, particularly as these the so-called fraudits start getting exposed. What's next for Trump? I think the guy is toast. I think they're going to be taking him down. Well, we can only hope. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Joe, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Uh, very thoughtful. Don in Los Angeles. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Chara in uh, Rockwall, Texas. Hey, Chara, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? I wanted your help, and I am a major progressive Democrat. And when I talk with anyone that is a GOP, uh, a Trump person, when I ask them what has uh, Trump done for the average person, they, well, he's done a lot of things. Their, their answers are so vague or really a non-answer. And so my question to you, to you is, what has he done for the average person? I can't. So I can have some ammo. Yeah. I, I can't think of anything specifically. I, the, the one area where I think that Donald Trump's instincts were right, his execution was just an absolute screaming disaster. But his instincts were right was on foreign trade or so-called free trade. Was, you know, he, he, he was putting tariffs on Chinese goods uh, in an attempt to reduce the U.S. trade deficit. It actually increased the trade deficit. China retaliated. It hurt our farmers. Then he appropriated billions of dollars in taxpayer money to give to the farmers so that they would still vote for him. Um, and it just mm -hmm. turned into an absolute mess because he didn't do it the right way. He was doing it by executive order. And the Chinese just figured, hey, the executive orders will get reversed when he gets out of office in four years. The big companies were saying, we're not going to bring our jobs back to the United States because this is just an executive order. It's only going to last four years. Right. You know, why should we bother? Yeah. Um, if you're going to take on the neoliberal free trade philosophy, as Trump did. And like I said, I think it was the one, and it was the one area where Donald Trump agreed, uh, in principle anyway, with Bernie Sanders and Sherrod Brown and the historical Democratic Party's positions. Um, you know, the, the kind of the Clinton administration was sort of the aberration in that. Um, but the, if you're gonna do it right, you do it through Congress and you change tariffs mm -hmm. in a way that are gonna last for a generation. So that companies will go, well, okay, for the next 40 years, we're going to pay a tariff on everything we make in China. We'll, we'll just make it here in Ohio, you know, or in, or in Texas, where, where you are. Um, yes, I remember that uh, the, the motorcycle uh, group that he, yeah. you know, praised and lambasted. I mean, yeah, Harley-Davidson. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and then they moved to, to Mexico, <laughs> their yeah, manufacturer. Absolutely. <laughs> right. That's right. So, yeah, I want to add one other thing. I uh, want to add one other thing. Uh, I, I called Governor Abbott last week because I wanted to know how the wall funding was going. Mm -hmm. And so the lady answered the phone. I said, I just want to know, you know. And she said, well, so far we have gotten $300,000. And I'm thinking, really? You crowdfunded and that's all you got? What, I mean, what would that do? Five feet? 
Yeah, not even that. I mean, I said, so is that going to be a monthly something you're going to, uh, you know, let people know about? Well, we're thinking about that. In other words, it is a total bomb. Yeah. I wonder if that $300,000 is going to end up as a consulting fee to Greg Abbott's campaign manager or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. probably. All righty. Well, thank you very much. It's got to be a tough one living there, Chara, uh, you know, politically oh, trust anyway. Me. I, I, know I know. And I live in oh, Rockwall County is major Democrat, I mean, Republican, but yeah. I mean, they even, when we had the 4th of July parade, they were forcing us out of the parade that were being so ugly to us. It oh, was horrible. That's unfortunate. But we're still fighting. All well, right, keep it up. You, so you know, there are beautiful All parts right. of Texas, and there's a lot of good people there. You're obviously one of them. Chara, thank you for the call. <laughs> thank, thank you for you. watching. Bye-bye. Good talking with you. And thank you for watching Free Speech TV. Also, I wanted to get into this piece that I published this morning about Ulysses S. Grant. And, and just, you know, kind of follow along with me here. Prior to 1965, from the founding of our republic until 1965, with the exception of this very, very brief period of time of just a little more than a decade right after the Civil War, with the exception of that, we were never a multiracial democracy prior to 1965. People of color specifically, and, and, included, and, and women as well prior to 1920, were not allowed to vote. It was basically only white men up until 1920 and then only white people until 1965. And there was this little window from the end of the Civil War in 1865 and Andrew Johnson, who, who was very opposed to the idea of black people voting, nonetheless, he was a Southern slave owner. Uh, he was Lincoln's vice president and he became president when Lincoln was assassinated. Now, nonetheless, he was president while this was happening during Reconstruction. But then he was followed by Ulysses S. Grant, who was elected in the election of 1868 and became president on, on March 4th of 1869. Grant had been a general in Lincoln's army. He helped win the Civil War. And he gave this speech that I think is really worth revisiting, which is why I, I wrote about it today at HartmanReport.com. Keep in mind, this speech he gave just, I don't know, 13, 14 months before he left office. It was the end of his term. A few months after this, we saw the end of multiracial democracy in the United States with the Hayes-Tilden so-called compromise, where the Republicans and Democrats got together and basically decided to stab African-Americans in the back, led to legal apartheid. It led to Jim Crow and legal apartheid, and ultimately even to the Plessy decision. So Grant goes back to Iowa. This is on September 29th, 1875. He goes to Iowa to visit a group of veterans called the Army of the Tennessee. Now, these were Union soldiers who had fought in Tennessee. And this is in Des Moines, Iowa. And he gives this speech. He starts out, he says, it always affords me so much gratification to meet my old comrades in arms of 10 to 14 years ago, which kind of puts it into, whoa, you know, this is recent. And to live over again the trials and hardships of those days, hardships imposed for the preservation and perpetuation of our free institutions. We believed then and believe now that we have had a government worth fighting for and, if need be, dying for. And then he goes on to say, but we are not prepared to apologize for the part we took in the great struggle. And it is to be hoped that like trials will never befall our country. And he's talking about this enemy of American democracy. He says, we must begin by guarding against every enemy threatening the perpetuity of these free Republican institutions. 
and the enemy that he specifically identified was ignorant racists, fundamentalist religious zealots. Absolutely brilliant. He said, if we are to have another contest in the near future of our national existence, I predict that the dividing line will not be Mason and Dixon's, but between patriotism and intelligence on the one side and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other. He said, leave the matter of religion to the family circle, the church and the private school supported entirely by private contributions. Keep the church and state forever separate. With these safeguards, I believe the battles which created the army of the Tennessee will not have been fought in vain. In other words, this was this, this ignorance and racism and bigotry and religion brought us the Civil War, says President Grant. And so now we are back to, are we going to be a multiracial democracy? And you've got these so-called conservatives in the Supreme Court. I think that they're white supremacists who are saying, you know, it's okay if states pass laws that make it much, much more difficult for people of color to vote. That's fine. No problem. We're okay with that. And here we are again. It's like, it's like this reincarnation. You've got 17 states now that have passed 28 voter suppression laws. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. If we do not overthrow the filibuster and pass the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Act, we're going to be back to what created the war that Grant fought. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Mike in Chicago. Hey, Mike, what's up? To me, the biggest problem with Reconstruction was that Andrew Johnson kind of killed it in the cradle. By the time Grant gets into office, it's like four years after the Civil War has ended. And so at that point, he starts putting in federal troops in order to help uh, black people vote and make sure that it happens. And, um, And he's still popular by the time he gets reelected for his second term. But during the second term, there's a big depression. The Republicans suffer a big loss in the Congress. At that point, people are starting to get tired of having federal troops in the South. Southerners have 
are very tired of it. But oh, they're rebelling. Very- and in part, they're rebelling in the South because over 600 African-Americans were elected to state legislatures and 16 African-Americans were elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. That's right. And so it, it makes me wonder sometimes, like, you know, I definitely don't want, like, a federal troop presence in the United States, but mm-hmm. I do wonder how far are we willing to go in order to protect these rights, and does that mean, like, Greg Abbott is going to pull out his National Guard to go protect his new state laws or something? I don't know. It's, it's, I, I don't know how to feel about it, uh, about how far. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I, I think the, the really straightforward process, you know, we have to recognize, first of all, that our Supreme Court has gutted the, the Voting Rights Act. We just need to be right up front about that. You know, when John Roberts 10 years ago said there's no more racism in America and a black president is the proof of it, and used that to gut, uh, I believe it was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and then most recently they just gutted Sections 4 and 2. That's an assault on the idea of a multiracial democracy coming from, you know, a, a white conservative. And I think the existential question, the the existential crisis that this country is facing, particularly given that within a decade or so we will no longer be a a majority white country, is are we going to function as a multiracial democracy or is this leftover confederacy group, this rump confederacy, are they going to continue to try to try to maintain, you know, America as a white ethnostate? And, you know, Mm -hmm. certainly this is happening in individual states. I mean, that's that's been going on for a long, long time and it's continuing to go on. And they're and they're picking this up. The only solution I can see to it is Congress and Congress can't do anything. I mean, in the House of Representatives has already passed, you know, both the John Wright, uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act and and the uh, For the People Act. But both of them are being filibustered by Republicans in the Senate right now. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I would say, and I, and I will call them that, you know, quite openly, white supremacist Republicans who don't want people of color to vote. And I, I just don't think it's sustainable. I don't know where it's going to go, but I don't think it's sustainable. And I think that they've got to, to bust the filibuster and get this stuff passed while they have the ability, because, uh, you know, it's not going to last long. Patience in Portland. Hey, Patience, what's on your mind? Hi. Hi. Seems how you're much more knowledgeable about politics and history and other things and than I am and more well-read. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what do you think the likelihood that democracy, as it, as, as it was before Trump, considering it wasn't completely great then, uh, will survive this right-wing Republican deluge of lies and cheating and trying to break us up? And, I, th- uh, I think we're on the knife's edge right now, Patience. I, I think there's a very good <laughs> chance that... I mean, first of all, over the last 30, 40 years, we have moved from being an imperfect democracy to being an imperfect oligarchy. Our political system as a result of a series of Supreme Court decisions has been taken over by big money. So there's that problem. And then now we've got all these Republican-controlled states that are controlled by these white billionaire oligarchs who are trying to do everything they can to prevent the the multiracial coalition that has become the Democratic Party from achieving political power in their states. And they're doing a very good job of it. And and uh, if if this isn't challenged at the federal level with something like for the people, the for the people act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, I am very concerned for the future of American democracy. I've been concerned for a very long time. I was born in 1950. And I watched all of this stuff go on, demonstrated when I thought it was important enough. And, and I watched our 
our customs, our our politics, our church, and all of that evolve. Yeah, our democracy is, has been under assault for most of our lives, patients. Patients, I gotta move along, yeah. but thank you for the call. Fredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo, what's up? By looking at the behavior of the GOP and the Republicans, they're behaving exactly, all of them, like Trump behaves. And uh, my guess is that Trump is behind everything that is, in, is going on right now uh, as far as, you know, suppressing the vote in all these states and passing all these laws of suppression. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, he's behind all of this. Thank you. I, you know, I don't think he's behind it so much, Alfredo, as he's riding the wave because, the, the, you know, the voter suppression efforts really started back in the 19, well, they've been, they've been a part of the American fabric forever. But the Republican Party's modern era of voter suppression efforts really started in the 1960s. And uh, so, uh, you know, Trump is just riding the, the wave, I guess would be the way that I would say it. Um, there's a much larger issue here, and that is this massive right-wing infrastructure, the very, very well-funded infrastructure that, you know, really does not want a multiracial democracy anymore. Rob in Mesa, Arizona. Hey, Rob, what's up? Hey, I just want to talk about the lie to cheat Republicans. And I, I can't say that enough. You know, lie to cheat Republicans, lie to cheat Republicans, lie to cheat Republicans. And how I came up with that phrase is very simple. When anytime you hear a politician or a law being written, ask yourself something real simple. Are they trying to right a wrong? Or are they trying to make it wrong for you to have rights? And the wrong has You're quite to the wordsmith, Rob. <laughs> yeah, well, and the wrong has to exist. And this is where Republicans, the lie to cheat Republicans, excel. All the wrongs they're trying to correct do not exist. They have to start with a lie. Yeah, you're it started right. With, uh, it started with the war on Christianity, mm -hmm. you know, and then the we have the critical Christmas. race theory. Yeah. They, they, re, they redefined it into something wrong. And, you know, and currently the whole lie over the election. Yeah. So, you know, basically just ask yourself something simple. Are they trying to right or wrong? Are they trying to make it wrong for you to have rights? Yeah. And if they're not, if the wrong doesn't exist, they're lying. So the lie to cheat Republicans should be our mantra. We're not to, trying to convince Democrats. We're trying to convince independents. And we just need something simple, yeah. you know, to spill out to the public. Yeah, I get it. Wordsmithing. Remember when Donald Trump, E. Jean Carroll, came out and said, Donald Trump raped me and I've got the dress with the stain on it to prove it. And Donald Trump came out and said, you know, that he wouldn't rape her because she wasn't his type. Remember that? I mean, she's suing him for saying that, uh, you know, that, that she lied. And that she's not suing him for saying she wasn't his type. But, you know, I, I wouldn't rape her. She's not my type. So now General Milley in this new book is claiming that, or is being quoted as essentially claiming that Donald Trump was planning on staging a coup, which, of course, is what the January 6th, the peak of. So Trump comes out, he just released this public statement, and he says, I never threatened or spoke about to anyone a coup of our government. So ridiculous. Sorry to inform you, but an election is my form of coup. And if I was going to do a coup, here we go, right? You know where this is going. It's just like, if I was going to rape someone, it wouldn't be Eugene Carroll. He says, if I was going to do a coup, one of the last people I'd want to do it with is General Mark Milley. End of quote. Ay, ay, ay. How is that not a confession? Anyhow, picking up your phone calls here 
Nancy in Elkhart, Indiana. Hey, Nancy, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. Well, this whole idea of, just like you said, how our democracy is so um, getting going to go away, <laughs> because I was, I'm like you, a baby boomer, and my family, if we look back, uh, my parents were born in the 1920s, and my grandfather was born not long after the Civil War, mm -hmm. 1877, and all during Reconstruction, that uh, white supremacy was just trickling down, yeah. I hate that term, but into our family. And my family that moved down south, um, that's where they were raised. And we would even travel, for instance, down south to visit them. And I can remember uh, going to a gas station where there were white toilets. Yeah. And that was like in, and then like that would have been like in 1958, 59. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine that was put into their brains. And of course, that was taught into ours and I've you know I learned that a long time ago and was taught that but I mean it's just and it's still filtering we know that it never went away yeah. and it's been and then how you said we know when the business and the money gets a hold of it it doesn't it never has gone away when that when that person said well look you know what was it Roberts yeah, yeah we, we we've had that go away because we had a black president it's never gone away, and we don't have a multiracial society, and it's it's taken hold now. Nobody wants to admit it. I agree, Nancy. And 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 to uh, expand the frame even a little bit larger than that for just a moment, it's not just that we have historically had a racist society, and you can take this back seven thousand years to to the epic of Gilgamesh. The history of modern history of Western civilization, if you want to call it that is one of class societies, societies in which there are classes, orders and classes. Uh, Louise and I have been watching this uh, TV show, The Vikings, you know, and oh, yeah. uh, there was all this slave, there was this huge major slave trade going on in Northern Europe and Southern Scandinavia and Northern England back in the 800s and 900s. And they were all white people, right? And they were buying and selling each other as slaves. It was a classist society. And what race brought to that, you know, once people got ships that could travel far enough to capture people who didn't look like them, it was like lazy man's classism. It's like an easy, sloppy, lazy way to identify a group of people who will always be at the bottom end of the economic ladder, who will always be in the lowest economic class. And so racism is just an extension of classism. It's like a lazy form of classism, which is why I think it's so appealing to the Republicans because they're really all about doing for the for the upper the upper upper class, you know, the top 0.001%, the billionaire class. That's who that's who's tune they're dancing to. And so hey, and let's Go ahead. Well, and when I first when I went first went away to the universities, some of my relatives didn't like the idea, and I know a lot of the Republicans don't like saying that the universities will teach you stuff. Well, you know, when I first heard the word, you know, well, the wasp, you know, the wasp people, uh, and you know, when I even told that to my dad, he goes, "What do you mean wasp?" And I explained, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Mm -hmm. He just thought that was terrible. He said, "They're filling your mind." Well, I hear the Republicans saying that now that that's why they don't want the children to be publicly educated 
Well, that's the same thing I was hearing growing up. Yeah. So, well, I thank you for explaining it the right way. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. It's great to hear from you. And I, you know, and I, I, I'm old enough to remember that I, there's one restaurant in Lansing, and I, I'm, I believe this is an accurate memory. This is from when I was seven, eight years old. Very fancy restaurant that my dad took our family to for, I think it was his wedding anniversary with my mom. And there was a sign by the front door that said, colored entrance around the corner. Thank you so much for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norman, what's on your mind today? Voting. <laughs> Voting. Okay, go for it. <laughs> well, you know where uh, Georgia passed this legislation that their Secretary of State is no longer going to be the referee of uh, an election. Right. That now the GOP is going to do that. Right. Well, for those of who don't understand this, I, th I got to thinking about it. It's like, let's say your team goes to Georgia to play the University of Georgia, and you discover there are no longer going to be any referees, that the, that the home team coach is going to make all of the decisions. Yeah, you have a, a choice. One. You can forfeit or you can play and lose. So what you have now in Georgia is essentially a dictatorship, because if the Republicans lose a seat in anything, they can say it's a fraudulent uh, vote, a bad election, and they can put their own person in. Right. That's exactly what this is. It's a dictatorship in Georgia. And, and when you've seen this, when we've seen this happen in other countries, very often what happens is the people just either boycott the election, they either try to massively show up or they boycott the election. Uh, but in both yeah. cases, what they're doing is they're protesting the fact that the election has been rigged. How do you expect that's going to play out in, in Georgia, Norma? And, and what's happening in, in Alabama? Well, right now there are four people on, uh, who have signed up on the ballot to run for uh, Richard Shelby's seat. And uh, most of them, you know, those are all the Republicans. We don't have anybody yet standing up to run on the Democratic side. We're hoping Doug Jones would do that. But here they're passing laws that, you know, you have to have a picture ID, which I really don't object to myself because, uh, you know, you need to, as far as I'm concerned, if you're a citizen, you're 18 and you have an ID, you should be allowed to vote for any election that you are eligible to vote in. Yeah. 
And, you know, they're trying to make it harder. They don't want people voting on Sunday. They don't want ballot boxes everywhere. They don't want to extend the hours. They're going to uh, they're talking about matching your original signature on your application to vote. Okay. well, when I signed up back in the 60s, does my signature as an elderly woman match that signature? Yeah, it's 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 insanely complicated, and that's the whole point. I mean, in every other country yeah. in the world, it's very but, or democracy. How many more states are going to do this? Say, if Arizona decides that the Republicans will decide who won. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's... Okay. Tennessee or Kentucky or Michigan or Washington, uh, 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 Wisconsin. Oh, we're going to decide now who won, and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. No, I get it. Norma, I've got to move along, but thank you. Thank you for raising some really important issues, and voting really is a key. I'm, I'm with you. Sandra in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's on your mind? Well, earlier you had mentioned that there are Republicans who are threatening to secede, and the first thing that popped into my mind is that a spouse never threatens divorce unless they know for sure what the response is going to be, because the other side may say, uh, don't let the door hit you on the way out, like FDR mm-hmm. did. Right. And, <laughs> I will and miss they may my be friends. more than happy, because they could shed themselves of all of those red states, of all of the money that the federal government does to support people in those red states, mm-hmm. because those red states won't do anything to help their own citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might say, oh, all those military bases, we'll just move those elsewhere. Hmm. because we want people that are not traitors on our military bases. Uh, It could also mean you could make some corrections to the Constitution, because it certainly needs some updating. Uh, And, well, what better time to do it than when you've just shed yourself of the Confederate states? That's an interesting thought. Basically, the fate and future of America politically. There is an amazing poll published over at Mediaite, but it's actually it's a YouGov poll, along with Brightline Watch. They polled people all around the country and asked, do you think that America should break up into five countries, essentially? This is fascinating. The Pacific, there would be a country called the Pacific, which would be from Washington State down to Southern California and include Alaska and Hawaii. There would be a country called Mountain, which would go from uh, basically Montana down to uh, all the way down to Arizona, New Mexico. There would be a country called Heartland that would be, you know, the Iowa, Kansas, that area all the way over to uh, West Virginia. There would be a country called the South, which would be everything south of the Mason-Dixon line and east of Texas, including Texas. And then there would be the Northeast, you know, everything north and east of basically, you know, Washington, D.C. What they found was that in the South, 66% of Republicans said yes, 20% of Democrats, 60% of independents said yes. The Democrats in the West, it was 47% of Democrats in the West said yes, split it up. Republicans were less enthusiastic about that. In the Northeast, it was more Democrats than Republicans. In the Midwest, in the so-called heartland, 43% of Democrats, yes. 35% of Republicans, yes. What would this do, um, talking about Ulysses Grant, sometimes referred to as Ulysses S. Grant. That was, all the evidence seems to indicate that that was actually kind of a branding strategy. He didn't have, he wasn't born with a middle name, but they put S as his middle name when he was running for president, so he could be U.S. Grant. But anyway, (laughs) President Ulysses Grant, uh, you know, was putting the country back together 
after the Civil War and was saying, you know, if we're going to explode again, if we're going to have another one of these conflicts, if we're going to melt down again, if we're going to break up again, if we're going to have another Civil War or something like that, it's going to be because of ignorance and racism and religion. And now we see this white evangelical movement that has turned itself into a white supremacist evangelical movement with a patina of Christianity and, a, and, and, and a ra you know, Old Testament rationale. You see state after state, Republican-controlled state after state, passing laws that do away basically with free elections and say we can purge anybody we want from the voting rolls for any reason we want. And we can decide if an election doesn't turn out the way that we want it, that the election judges are going to be partisan players and we'll just overturn the election or just ignore the results or just declare that, you know, that, that the 12,000 votes by which the Democrat won that, that margin, those 12,000 voters are, are ineligible or fraudulent or we're just not going to count them. This is literally what they're doing. And it's what Texas is trying to do. The white Republicans are all, and, and that's pretty much the only kind of Republican there is. I realize there are a few exceptions. I think there are the exceptions that prove the rule. Uh, but they're about creating a white ethno state in the United States. And then there's the rest of us who are saying, you know, we believe in democracy. We believe in the idea that majority of the people, what the majority of the people decide is how things should be, you know, within the context of a, of a, of a structure of law and rights within the, in the structure of a, of a constitution. And this is called a constitutionally limited representative democratic republic. And we think that human nature is actually generally positive. And if we if, if we go with the majority opinion, most of the time it's going to be right. And when it's wrong, it'll probably correct itself in a fairly, in a relatively short period of time. So should we be breaking up this country? I, I'm inclined to think, A, it's not possible. It, it's not going to happen. Um, B, it probably wouldn't be a good thing. But, but if we were to become these five countries that this poll indicates as many as uh, two and three Southern Republicans want, want to have happen. If we were to become, you know, five countries, then what, do we become like Europe? Do we have like a European Union kind of thing? Do we still have a federal government that oversees it? Should we regionalize? Does that solve the problem with the Senate, for example? where you know, right now you've got a Senate that is heavily tilted toward Republicans because of these small states, because back in the 70s, when many of these small states were Democratic states, the Republicans realized, hey, you know, the amount of money it'll take to flip Wyoming Republican compared to the amount of money it'll take to flip California Republican is, I mean, this is a no-brainer. And if we control the Senate, we can control the courts. And if we control the courts, then we control law in America. So let's go after these individual states and flip them red. And they did. And it's worked. So as a way of perhaps correcting that, should we think about, at the very least, maybe reorganizing our regionality and saying, okay, instead of 50 states, we are now five regions. And each region has 10 senators. And so we get to 50 senators, or each region has 20 senators. The, 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 when this poll was asking people, I mean, when they broke it out like this, 
it uh, it came out to uh, more or less population equal areas, which I thought was fascinating. Do, should we be reimagining America, or is it just too dangerous? Now, again, I'll I'll, I'll give a caveat to my own question and logic, and then I'm going to pick up your phone calls here uh, in just a second. Um, but if we were to do that, the main danger that I see is the same danger that I'm seeing from this uh, Convention of States. There's a website called Convention of States. I think it's .com. And it's sponsored by groups of right-wing billionaires. They have been holding now for almost a decade annual rehearsals in Washington, D.C., for a constitutional convention where they're going to rewrite the Constitution from scratch. And, of course, embed into it oligarchy, embed into it the power, you know, the, the, the right of billionaires to own politicians and control the political system and things like that. And they're, you know, if they can get a couple more states in the next few elections, they might even be able to pull this thing off. It's still kind of a distant dream for them, but they're up to, you know, they, they need half the states. And they're, they're almost, they're, they're within three or four states of it, almost there. So if we were to reorganize the country, this is the giant asterisk on any suggestion that I make about considering reorganizing the country. If we were to do that right now with the political system that the Supreme Court has given us saying that money is speech and corporations are people and that money slash speech from billionaires and that money from the people that are corporations basically controls most of our political system right now. Is that the system that you would want to be driving the train of reinvention? And I would say no, which then raises the question, how do we get to a system that could do that? And outside of a lot of activism or the Republican Party imploding, and perhaps Donald Trump will bring that about, I'm, you know, which is another interesting question. You know, is Trump more of an asset or a liability to the GOP? But I don't see that happening. I, there's so much money that underpins the Republican Party. It's, it's like an iceberg, you know, the, the little peak at the top. You've seen all these crazed politicians and the Jim Jordans and the Donald Trumps. And you go, oh, it's chaos. It's Lauren Boebert. It's, it's nuts. But the, underneath all that stuff under the water, that's that billionaire money that is holding it all up. It's not going away. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.